Good morning. Our first reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 to 23, which is on page 237 in the Bibles we provide. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on, and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and, and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The word of our Lord. Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 9, which is on page 820 in the Bibles we provide. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Gospel of Christ. And our reading for the sermon today is from Micah chapter 5 beginning with verse 10, which is found on page 779 
of the Bibles we provide. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Arian and Miriam, Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. We are continuing in our study of the Minor Prophets, and before I even get started, I just want to say thank you to all of you guys. You guys have been very gracious and sweet and encouraging to the JV, you know, preaching team here while John's been away. Um, he's coming back, we promise. I know that you're thinking we're just going to keep prolonging this. He'll be back in August, and we long for him to be back too. Not that we don't love to come up here and do this, but we love to hear him. That's what it comes down to. That's a lot of the reason we're here at this church. So uh, thank you all again for being gracious to us. Uh, as we start to jump into Micah, what you need to know a little bit about, um, for background's sake, is Micah's much more recognizable than some of the other prophets were, even in his own day, um, that he uh, ruled, I mean, he was a prophet when the kings of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah were in Judah, and he was one that was instrumental that God used in the reforms of Hezekiah, even mentioned by Jeremiah later when Jeremiah is preaching to the people and talking about how important that Micah was. So the things that he said had an impact um, on all of Judah, at least for a season, for a time. And what you're going to hear is very similar themes. There might be a point that if you've listened to all, you know, by the time we're done all of these, there's going to be very clear things that you're going to say, I felt we've heard about this over and over. And you're right. Because this was God speaking to his rebellious people, this message, return to me and I'll return to you. Return to me and I'll return to you. And he's speaking out against their wickedness. He's speaking out against their idolatry and their false worship. And this is no different. Now, for me, I take encouragement in that because I would love to tell you that I come up with these new creative ways to sin, but the truth is I struggle with the same things over and over and over and over again, and it gives me great encouragement and hope to hear God continue to come after his people, even in the midst of their rebellion and sin, and to give them grace and to give them hope. And Micah's no different. He's going to speak out, and what we're going to see in this is him speaking out on the topic of worship. 
and his people and the worship that Judah was offering and should be offering. What we'll have is three things. Number one, we're going to look and see what false worship is. You'll see that in chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. Number two, we're going to have what's true worship. What is, what is it that we hear that the Lord requires or seeks from us, which is chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And then I'm going to cheat, and we're going to read a little bit more at the very end. We're going to say, why do we worship? We're going to look at chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, and how Micah ends his book. So first, let's talk about false worship. What was the false worship? And we see this by God's actions, by what God is doing amongst his people. He says, first, he's going to cut off some things. The picture would be pruning, to prune flowers, to prune trees, to get rid of something that could bring death to continue to give it greater life. And God's going to cut off specific things that were, they were leading to them into false worship. First thing he says, I'm going to cut off your horses. I'm going to cut off your chariots. I'm going to cut off your cities. I'm going to cut off your strongholds. Why that, of all things? It's because the people were tempted to not need God anymore. They began to hope. They began to, to believe and trust in their own military might and in their own power in the things that they had instead of God. In these things, there were even gifts of God. God had given them these great gifts. But Calvin says anything that becomes a hindrance or an obstacle from us to worship God, even his gifts, will God take away. He is taking away the very things he had provided because they turned what was good into something that was an idol. And they trusted not in the Lord, but in their own military might and power. So God said, I'm going to cut that off. He says, I'm also going to cut off the false wisdom that you're getting. They were going to the sorcerers. They were going to fortune tellers. They were going to all these people to hear wisdom, to get advice, to help them know how to live instead of going to God's prophet or to God's word. And for us, these things kind of feel foreign. They feel antiquated. They feel old, don't they? It's like those aren't the things that we deal with. I can confess that I definitely, multiple times, believe in my own power more than God's power. And that actually, if I'm honest with myself, what I try to do in my life is to eliminate my need for God from the picture. I want to look clean enough, good enough, act like I've got it all together in such a way that God is an accessory, but not the main part of my story. And I don't think I'm the only one who sees that way, that we try to build up our own kingdoms to not see God. And where we get our wisdom, I don't know where you get your wisdom, but I would dare say that there's some of us that our theology of life comes as much from CNN or Fox News as it comes from the Word of God. That that's part of what we seek after. We seek after the wisdom of this world. So were these people. They were distracted by things that were false instead of seeking after the truth that was in God. And God says, I'm going to cut that off. He says, I'm going to cut off your idols. Now, again, another thing that doesn't feel relevant. Most of you, I don't know you all personally, but I don't think most of you are fashioning little idols for yourself to worship in your homes as the people did in these days. If you do, different conversation. We'll talk about that later. But I don't think that's going to be the main temptation for most of us. But what are the things that we earn? What are the things that we make? What are the things that we own who take our attention and draw our hearts away from the Lord and onto them? What are the things that cause us to want to worship that we have in our grasp that will take our eyes and focus off the Lord? Those are the idols 
in our hearts and our lives. God says, I'm going to cut those off from you. I'm going to cut off you worshiping the works of your own hands. But not only is he talking about cutting off, he talks about uprooting. That's the next thing he's going to do is uproot something. Um, now, I don't know about you. I don't know what your summer has looked like. I am shocked at how good I am at growing weeds in my own yard. I had no idea I was so good at it. I just no idea. No matter how hot it's been or how little rain, grass, no so much. Weeds, absolutely. They love it. And it's one thing I wish I could just cut off the tops of the I wish I could just mow the weeds and be like, yeah, they're gone. That's good. But they're entrenched into my yard, into my grass. And so I had to spend about an hour. So if I cramp up and fall down, it's because my hamstrings are killing me. To like pull out these weeds. And so when God says, I'm going to uproot from them, it's because the false religions that they had started to follow had gotten so intertwined with Christianity that you couldn't just cut off the top. You had to pull it out from the roots. They started to worship God as you worship the gods of Moab, Asherah. That's why he says, I'm going to uproot. I'm going to take it out from within you. And God's desire for his people was to do this to purify them to take out those things which were false worship, the things they should have done for themselves, the things he had warned them about from the very beginning. That any place where we're trusting in something other than him or getting our wisdom from somewhere other than him or that we're bowing down or following or worshiping with our time, with our affections, with our attention, something other than him, God says, I'm going to get rid of all of that. Then we transition from false worship to what is true worship, starting in chapter 6. And you see this beautiful picture that God goes from anger and wrath and vindication to this moment of a, a courtroom scene. He calls the people, plead the case before me. I have an indictment to bring against you. So it's this, this option of like, God is there to argue the case. And what is beautiful about this is God has the ability as judge and jury to declare us guilty and to punish us in that moment. But instead, he lovingly, graciously condescends to his people. He comes to listen and hear him. And his voice is not the voice of anger and wrath and law. It's the voice of almost like a wounded love. Think about what he says. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? It's as if God's saying the people just kind of got sick and tired of God. Was it because he asked too much, because he didn't keep his promise? We don't know what their motive was, but that's how God saw it. But they, they were so entrenched into other worship that he just was a distraction. He just was wearing them out. He just was too much, and they didn't want him anymore. And so he says to him, answer me, what is it? And because the people had no answer, because there was no answer, God answers in what I've given to you. He said, okay, let me tell you what I have done for you. Because true worship always begins with remembering what God has done. True worship always begins with remembering what God has done. And so he recounts for them this moment. He's like, remember that I brought you up out of slavery, that I redeemed you from Egypt. There was this picture, it's like, I brought you out. I paid the price for your slavery, which was the firstborn of Egypt. I brought you to where you needed to be. That he redeemed his people from slavery, and he has redeemed us from the slavery that comes from sin. 
that whether we realize it or not, that apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. That it has its power over us. And God says, I have redeemed them. And he says, we have redeemed you from the slavery of sin by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. So not only did he redeem them and bring them out, he also gave them leaders. He said, I gave you Moses, and I gave you Aaron, and I gave you Miriam. People who would give them truth. People who would lead them closer to God. People who would help them. My hope and prayer for everybody in here is you've got those people in your life. People who love you, who care about you, who are helping you, who guide you to more and more of God. Because that's his gift. But not only that, he says, I blessed you. He's going to go to a little, maybe an obscure reference for some of you to Numbers chapter 22, this picture of Balak and Balaam. Quick version of this, Balak was the king of Moab, and he was fearful about all of Israel because they had grown so numerous. He had heard of their power and was afraid what would happen. So he tries to contract this guy named Balaam to go and curse Israel. And on three occasions he tries to do this, but God intercedes, and in the end what Balaam does is he blesses Israel. And Balak's like, what? Like it's the exact opposite of what I've asked you to do. I don't understand. But it was God interceding, showing that it's like, I'm in charge of all the events of human history. I can even turn things that are supposed to be bad for good and for blessing for you. And then the last thing he's telling them about his presence with them. It says from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim was the last place where God's people were in the wilderness, and Gilgal was the first place that they lived when they crossed the promised land. When they crossed the Jordan River, God says, I was with you that whole time. I led you. I directed you. I did not leave you. And this was mostly so important because Moses died during this time. Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. So these people could be like, wow, we're left by ourselves. God says, I go with you. He recounts this beautiful picture and says, I want you to see my saving acts, my righteous acts for your sake. I want you to see my steadfast love. Because then when you see this, what I ask you to do in worship is nothing. When you recognize and see what this should look like, the rest doesn't matter. And where they go next is this idea, and we all go there. If we really realize how wicked we are, or we really realize what God has done, we begin to want to figure out how to fix it. And you see them going back to the sacrificial system to try to fix it. Now keep in mind, God instituted the sacrificial system for them. The idea of there is a sin, you provide a sacrifice, that is how you are forgiven. Again, a gift that God gave them. But it was supposed to be an outward expression of an inward change inside their heart. That they offer these sacrifices because of their trust and belief in God. But what we realize, and even in the passages we read, that it had become ritual. It had become outward acts and hypocrisy, and it didn't penetrate to the heart. It became a very selfish act. It was between me and God. I do this thing, and I get this from God. It treated God as a thing almost to be used. What Tim Keller says so beautifully, religious people find God useful, but Christians find God beautiful. 
these people saw God as useful and nothing more. He was a means to an end. He was a way to be forgiven. And their whole lives were outward show and outward acts. It was a life of deep hypocrisy that on the outside everything looked good, but in the inside nothing changed. And these people who had heard God's truth forever and ever in years and years became people who just went through the motions instead of allowing God to penetrate the deep recesses of their heart. So we get this promise. We get God talking. We get God saying, here's what we do. So they go to the sacrificial system and say, should we offer a year-old calf? You're thinking, that seems like an odd thing to say. Leviticus tells us it was the best offering you could offer. Then they go, well, okay, not that. What about thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil or even my firstborn? Could I do these things to be right with God? You see they get more exaggerated and extravagant as the time goes. All things that were used for worship. But the answer is no. None of those things could earn them favor or earn them presence with God. There was no amount of sacrifices that would be enough to worship him because they'd become only an outward act and not the inward reality. So God says, this is what I require. And that word requires most often translated in the Old Testament as seek. This is what I seek to see in you. You see that God dictates the terms. We don't have to guess. We don't have to barter. We don't have to, you know, make some proposals. Well, God, we think we're going to give you this. He says, this is what I want. This is what my people should look like. And it turns the outward expression of the law to the inward reality of the moral reality of if you really want to worship me, it has way more to do with what you do outside of your life than inside of your life. It has way more to do with what you do in communion with others than what you only do for yourself. Out of what I've done for you, I am now sending you out. And it changes everything. The first thing it changes is how we see other people. He says to do justice. That word is mispot. It is very, it was used often in the Old Testament. You'll find in every book but seven of the entire Old Testament talking about this idea of justice, which is to have a desire to do right to another because they are made in God's image. You notice it doesn't say to whom to show justice. It just says to show justice. To do it for others. And if we're honest, we're all about justice when it comes to talk about us, right? When, when, when like, I feel wronged, I'm all about justice. Let me give you an example. So yesterday, we're at, we're, as a family, we went to Chick-fil-A for lunch, because that's what Christians do, right? So we're at Chick-fil-A, we're eating lunch there, minding our own business. We literally walk in one of the side doors, and it's crowded, as Chick-fil-A typically is, and we get ready to get in line. There's someone in front of us, and we're kind of standing off looking at the menu, and a lady begins to, like, yell at us. Don't, don't you see the line? The line's way over there. Don't you? I mean, can't you? Oh, fine, just cheat it. I mean, she's like, we've been there like a minute, tops. And she's like yelling at us. And I'm like, wow, that's a sense of justice. That's, she wants, but it had nothing to do with anyone else. It's the fact that she had to wait in line. So everyone else should have to wait in line. And as she continues to kind of verbally kind of, you know, berate us a little bit, my beautiful peacemaking wife tries to intercede and she's not hearing any of it. 
It's at this point where my sense of justice wants to come in. And my sense of justice would have been probably an unbiblical sense of justice. I like the, the smiting and the, that, that stuff makes sense to me. But that's how we, if we're honest, I am all about justice when it's about me. When I've been wronged, when things aren't working the way it should be, I am all about justice. But it says to do justice. Not to receive justice, to do justice for others. Paul Craigie said that when injustice ruled in Israel, that all of the temple worship was a mockery. That as they stood before a holy God and offered their sacrifices, and yet the land was full of injustice. It's like, what's the point? For us, as we seek and think and pray, where are the places where we are called to do justice in our world? Because we're called to do that as an act of worship to God, to look at others as created in the image of God and to treat them and love them that way. The second thing that he says for us to do, first, what is? To do justice. Second, to love. It's translated kindness here. Some of y'all probably think mercy because you're thinking the old Young Life song, you know, Micah 6-8. But it, it's actually, that's not what the word is. The word is hesed. And if you, you know, I know that all of you guys are studying Hebrew at home for fun. I know that you do that. Three quarters of the time it's translated steadfast love. And it's God's steadfast love for his people. So he's saying you need to love steadfast love. Now, I'll admit, until this week, I've always misunderstood this and gotten this wrong because I've always put the word with in the middle. So love with mercy or love with kindness, I've always seen it as an outward act towards other people. This is an act towards God. We are to love his steadfast love. That's the picture he wants us to see. Because when we love his steadfast love, it changes everything. It becomes the most important thing in our life. It becomes the thing that we focus on the most and we pray about and we worship and we care about and we talk to to other people. He wants us to have a deep desire and affection for his steadfast love. And it not to be a compartmentalized thing that we do on Sundays. As the pub talk that we had a couple weeks ago talked about, what is, what do we, how do we worship God? What do we do with God on Thursday? What does it look like to follow and worship the Lord and seek his steadfast love on every day of the week and in every place that you go? That's the picture he wants you to have, to love his steadfast love. Because when we do that, when we fully understand it, acknowledge it, seek after it, desire it, it literally will change everything about who you are. Because worship is not something you tack on to a life of self-absorption. It's a reorienting of your entire life. And I confess way too often, I want to just pack Jesus in to all the things that I'm already doing instead of saying, no, no, he's at the center and he affects everything else that I do. To love, steadfast love. The last thing he says is to walk humbly. And he wants the people of Israel to get this picture, this idea in their mind of Genesis, of God walking in the cool of the day in the garden. Picture of him 
walking with Adam as he names the animals. This deep, intimate fellowship. He wants them to think that's how we need to look at God. And it's going to affect how we see ourselves because we walk with him humbly. We readily acknowledge that we're not the center of the universe anymore. That our will, our desire, our plans mean nothing compared to God's. And that we at all times and all ways submit ourselves to God's work instead of our own desires. That we walk humbly with the creator of the universe who invites us to do it. He invites us to intimate connection and fellowship and relationship. To walk humbly. To love steadfast love. To do justice. Well, the question really comes into is why? So if you've got your Bibles, you want to open it back up. If not, I'll read it to you. It's Micah chapter 7. I'm going to end the book. Start with verse 18. It's on page 781 in the Bibles we provide. This is the why we worship. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea and you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to your fathers from the days of old. We get this beautiful picture of who God is. We get this beautiful representation of what God does. That when they're tempted to think they're left alone, when they're tempted to think he's forgotten us and he's left us as they go off into exile, he gives them this picture of hope for all of us. Why would he ask us to do these things? Because he pardons and passes over our iniquities. And it's not this, he's looking the other way and he's not dealing with it. The idea is the picture of the Passover, that the lamb was slain and the blood was on the door to forgive the sin, to pass over God's people. That's how he looks. He has paid the price for our sin. But not only does he does that, look at the totality and finality with how he deals with sin. It says he treads it underfoot and he casts it into the depths of the sea. Again, he's giving them a picture to Genesis, to the promise of the Messiah, that our enemy will strike his heel, but what will Jesus do? He will crush his head. He will crush the head of our enemy under his foot. That even as powerful as sin seems to feel in our lives, that to God it's nothing more than us to kill an ant. But then not only that, he takes it and casts it into the depths of the sea. It's gone forever. I feel like I'm afraid that God's going to throw it into the waves because then I know it's coming back to shore. But he says, no, I cast it into the depths of the sea. He takes our sin and separates it as far as the east is from the west, not because of righteous acts we've done. This is to a people who have been steeped in idolatry, but for his glory, that a God like this might be worshipped. Because what other God does that? Who is a God 
like this, you won't find one. Not in any religion, not in anything that you think might satisfy, you won't find someone who loves like this. And his attitude, his actions are to get rid of this in his attitude. He says, I will not stay angry forever and I will have compassion again. I will have compassion again. Over and over, God gives us compassion. He gives us forgiveness. Not anything that we deserve. And he does it because we're his inheritance. Because we are his. We belong to him. And as his inheritance, when he forgives us, we have an opportunity to reflect him to the world around us. That's why he calls us to this kind of life. That's why he calls us to do justice. Because when we do justice, people go, why would someone do that? Because Jesus has shown me justice. Why would I love steadfast love? Because I understand steadfast love and how it's been done for me. How would I walk humbly? Because I see who I am and I see who God is and there's nothing else that I could do but be living a life of humility before a holy God. What has been done for us is to come out and worship to the world that they may know Him. And that starts with remembering. That's why we have this table. We remember the power of God. We remember the grace of God. We remember the mercy of God. So as you leave this place today, what are the things in your life that need to be cut off? And what are the things in your life that need to be uprooted that you know are in competition of a jealous God for his attention and affection? And what are the ways do you see reflecting in your life because of what God has done for you a heart for justice, a love for his steadfast love, and a desire to walk humbly with him. And how are you taking the time and the effort and the energy to remember all that he has done for you, for his glory and for your good? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it does for us. Thank you that we can remember that you are a good and gracious God who does not hold his anger forever but has compassion on us again and again. Thank you that you pardon and you pass over our iniquity even when we don't deserve it. And thank you that you love us enough to send your very own son whom you love to die on the cross for our sin. Lord, give us lives and hearts that are ready to worship you as the way you've called us to. Help us to be people who live lives that do justice and love your steadfast love and walk humbly with you all the days of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.